This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a real privilege to be here at GYC with you. Is this anyone's first GYC? Oh, my goodness. Okay. I was only expecting one or two hands, but there were a number of people here who are visiting for the first time. Um, our seminar for this weekend is on discipleship. And if you came last evening for the evening devotional, um, you would have heard Sebastian and myself talk about the importance of discipleship. I believe that this is a missing link in our ministry today. And just to give you an overview of what to expect today and tomorrow as well, there are in total three modules. Um, The first module is the one you're sitting in right now. The second module will take place straight after lunch, and there Sebastian will present the first message, and then I'll come back and I'll do the second message after that. The third module will also be tomorrow in the morning, same time as our module today. Sebastian will do the first message, and I'll follow up with the second message. Discipleship is something that our churches fundamentally need. And so if you come this afternoon, straight after lunch, we'll be talking about discipleship revolution. And over there, we'll be looking at a biblically-founded basis for discipleship. That's a session you don't want to miss because that's when we'll get to the crux of what discipleship actually involves. Tomorrow morning, we'll be looking at some hands-on practical ways and how you can actually start discipleship programs in your local church. This morning, though, I want to share with you my journey into discipleship. Sebastian had a wonderful, powerful message for you this morning, and I want to back that up with my own personal testimony, sharing with you how the Spirit of God worked in my own life, Now, some of you have been raised as Adventists. Others of you have recently come into the faith. Regardless of where you come from, what background you have, I believe that the Spirit of God has been leading you to throughout your life and even as you've come here for GYC. Now, I have one request for you this morning. There are many great speakers here. I don't need to list their names. You already know them uh, by heart. And they're presenting all across uh, this convention center. But I have a request for you. It's very easy for us to be distracted and to seminar hop, if you know what I mean. You hear of all these great speakers and you don't want to miss them. So you go for one topic here. You go to the next room and get the other topic there. And you want to make sure you can get everything. But if we are here to receive training and equipping if we really want to learn what it means to be disciples for Christ, then I encourage you to come back to every session and stay on and you will get the training that you need in discipleship. Come back next year and you can then attend another seminar by a different speaker. So, is that clear? You know, it's a privilege. I just found out yesterday that at GYC, we have people representing over all 50 states of the United States. But not only that, we have people from over 66 countries that are present here just for this weekend. I think that is something incredible. God is doing something powerful. And I believe that the Spirit of God is going to be poured out in these next few days. Our theme for this weekend is fill me our earnest plea. The Spirit of God is longing to fill our hearts and our minds. The Spirit of God wants to renew our souls, to bring us revival and reformation for these end times. GYC is not just another conference. GYC was raised up by God to train and equip disciples, to prepare us for His soon coming. God wants to do something in your life. God wants to use young people in powerful ways, like He hasn't used them before. He wants the Pentecost to be repeated. And I believe that as you come here over these next few days, we will sense the Spirit of God moving 
in a powerful way. I want to share with you because I just came back from a mission trip to Taiwan. I came back on Tuesday. I was still feeling jet-lagged and sporadically I was falling asleep. I was trying my hardest to prepare for these seminars, but next thing I'd know, I'd, I'd, I'd be asleep on my desk. You know, when you suffer from jet lag, it's hard to get back into the rhythm of things when you're in a different time zone. But I think I'm back now. God is doing a powerful work in Taiwan. I went with my home church in Australia, and we had a team of about 10 people. I'll be sharing a little bit about this in my next session after lunch. And we were running an evangelistic series for a period of a week. And so they invited our church from Australia to come down and do an evangelistic series and provide training for the members. And I was there for about 20 days. Um, I had the chance to arrive in Kaohsiung, which is in the south of Taiwan. And then we made our way to Hualien, which is a beautiful scenic place out in the east of Taiwan. From there, we made our way north to Shalu, where the evangelistic series was conducted. Now, just to give you an idea of the schedule, it was pretty hectic. We started at 8.30 in the morning with morning devotionals, and I was doing morning devotionals on Adventist identity. From there, we did outreach in the community, inviting people for an English class we were running, and also healthy cooking classes. And we were going to link that to an evangelistic series that was going to take place. God bless our efforts. If you come back this afternoon, I'm going to share a powerful testimony of how God used our humble efforts to bring Buddhists and people who worshipped ancestors to hear about the Seventh-day Adventist message for the very first time. And you will be inspired to see how God is doing an incredible work in Taiwan. But this is one country. What about the work that God is doing here in the United States? We had ten people go to Taiwan, and God worked powerfully. But as I look here in our midst, there are 5,000 people gathered. Are you just here to receive another powerful message? Or are you here to do something when you return back to your home church? I believe that's the fundamental question. We have all the knowledge you could possibly receive. Some of you have been coming to GYC since it first started. Others of you have just come here for the first time. But God not only wants to inspire us and revive us in our time here, but God wants to give us practical tools that we can implement in our local churches such that each church can become a lighthouse for God and the work can be finished. You know, yesterday uh, we had a speaker's luncheon. And during that time, Sean Reed, the Vice President for Programming, reminded us of our need to humble ourselves before God. He told us to pray for three things. The first was that God would break our hearts as speakers. That as we presented the Word of God before you, as we broke the Word of God before you, that we would share the Word of God with sincerity and with humility. The second point of prayer was that God would also break your hearts as well. That in the time that you're here, it would not just be business as usual, but that it would be business unusual. That the Spirit of God would be unleashed in new and unique ways. The third point that he asked us to pray for is that God would give us divine appointments in the community and that God will give us divine appointments in our time here. You know, yesterday I went for a walk in the morning. I wanted to see the city for myself. And as I started to walk, I began to pray for the, for the residents in Houston, Texas. It's my first time here. And I started to pray for the people. I said, God, give us divine appointments as we got on outreach on Friday. But I also prayed for those who will be coming to GYC too as well as myself. But it wasn't too long before, as I start to walk in the morning, that I heard a man following me. And he started to call out behind me. Now, it's my first time here, I'm not from the United States, but I hear oftentimes of muggings. And so I was a little bit scared, and so I wasn't responding to him as he was calling out to me. I just gently started to go for my walk, hoping that he would disappear. But he was pretty persistent, and so he started to call out after me. And then eventually, I felt impressed to you know, give up and turn on and see what he was actually trying to communicate. And he came up close to me, and this man's name was Jesus. Jesus is a 19-year-old. Jesus had fled his home. He lives in Dallas, in Texas, 
and Jesus was recently released on parole and he was looking for a few bucks to find his way back home. And so Jesus said, excuse me, sir, it's really embarrassing for me to ask you this. He said, I've been asking many different people, but do you have some spare change? And I told him that, no, I'm actually a visitor here in Houston. It's my first time, but I have a much greater gift that I want to share with you today. And I shared with him in brief my personal testimony. And we prayed, and Jesus began to walk off. And as Jesus disappeared, I began to reflect on my own personal testimony and how God had led me to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. As we begin, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, I believe you want to do something dramatic. Father, the stories that we read about in the book of Acts are not just fables, but they are live events that took place, that were steeped in history. And Father, your promise of sending the Spirit of God is a promise that is for us today as well. You promised not only the early rain, but you promised the latter rain as well. And so this morning, I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit. The Father, we heard the message last evening, but we pray that in our time here, our hearts will be broken, that the Spirit of God would penetrate our hearts and our minds, that we would be renewed with a fiery love for the Spirit of God and for a study of the Scriptures, that our hearts would be ablaze for God once more, that as the disciples spread out everywhere, preaching the Word, we ask that the same would happen here, starting at GYC. Father, we ask for the infilling of your Holy Spirit this morning. We pray these things. In Jesus' name, Amen. My key text for this morning comes from the book of John. The book of John, chapter 14. And it says here in the book of John, chapter 14, verses 16 and 18, Jesus, just before He was going to ascend into heaven, had a critical message that He wanted to share with His disciples who were to continue the work after He departed. Jesus knew that the work He had done here on this earth was something that His disciples would have to continue afterward. And so He gave them the assurance that they so desperately longed for in John chapter 14, he said, And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another Comforter, that He may abide with you forever. He said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. When I look back on my own personal journey to discipleship, I was born in a busy city in Mumbai, India. It's a city of over 20 million people, and it's called a city that never sleeps. If you've ever been to India, you'll know exactly what I mean. It's a chaotic place. It's a place that attracts everyone because it's a city of bright lights. And I was born in a well-to-do family. We had everything that you could desire materially. We, I was born in a Hindu family. We were not Christian. And my dad had worked hard. What had started off as a humble carpentry shop had grown into, into an operation that took place all across India. And my dad was frequently traveling, running this business. But even though we had everything materially that you could ask for, there was some, something that we desperately lacked, and that was a quality time spending with our parents and our family. I realized that we lacked that sense of love that I saw present in other families around us. At the age of seven, at a young age, my dad made a radical decision. And that radical decision was to send my brother and myself to a boarding school far away in the south of India. Now, if you're familiar with the geography of India, India is kind of long and very narrow. We come from the north, that's where Mumbai is located, and my dad sent us to a very small town all the way in the south. 
And I remember what it was like being uprooted from my family at the age of seven, leaving everything that you knew and coming to a foreign place. And the amazing thing was that the school was run by missionaries from overseas. It was a small school of about 250 people. And this was the first contact I would have with Christianity. It was a non-denominational school. But at the age of seven, I made a dramatic decision. And that decision was to accept Jesus as my personal Savior. You know, I'll never forget it because after our dorm parents switched the lights off, we had about 30 boys staying in one dorm. And after they switched the lights off, I got out of my bed and I got down on my knees and I said, Jesus, I don't know if you exist, but if you do, today I want to accept you as my personal Savior and I'm ready to commit my life to you. A couple of years later, my dad made an unexpected visit to our school. It was pouring down with rain outside and our dorm parents came to me and they said, your dad is here. He wants to spend the weekend with you. I was a little taken aback because my dad didn't send me any letters. He didn't send me any emails to let me know that he was coming. And my dad came in from the rain and he gave me a warm embrace. And as we drove to our favorite hotel, I asked my dad, where's mom? And my dad told me that our mom would not be joining us for this trip. He later on went on to explain that we were having family problems. And he told me that it had led to a divorce case. And this divorce case would last for the next 10 years of my life. Oftentimes when I was in that boarding school, most of my holidays when we went back home was spent in the court arguing either for my mom or for my dad. It was something that completely devastated my life. I was desperately longing for love and for family. After that point of time, a few years went by. The divorce case lasted for 10 years. Later on, my dad sent my brother and myself to Australia in Melbourne. And that's the city in which I live right now. Currently, I'm studying at Andrews University in Michigan. And I remember what it was like going to Australia. Again, I was uprooted from being with my friends who I'd known for the last 10 years of my life and now going to a foreign place once more. Our school was highly regimented. We used to have something called prep, where we had specific time given for our homework. In the morning times, we used to have inspection, where one of the teachers used to come and inspect our rooms to make sure our shoes were nicely polished, our clothes were perfectly uh, patterned and uh, well-suited on us, that we came to school on time and departed on time, it was highly regimented. All of a sudden, I came to Australia, and around me people were drinking, they were doing drugs, they were doing all kinds of things that I'd never witnessed before. Suddenly, my life began to spiral out of control. And I remember praying to God one night. I looked up into the stars at night, and I said, God, I need a break from you. I said, for one year, I'm going to stop praying to you. And I ended my prayer, and I believe God granted me that request. During that year, I completely forgot about God. I stopped praying. I stopped studying my Bible. But God, however, did not forget about me. Because at the end of that year, it was like any other day. I was on a train. I needed to catch a train. I'd been at school, at university, and it was about 8.30 p.m., and I needed to rush back home because I hadn't had dinner yet. And so I made a quick dash, knowing that my train came only every 10 to 15 minutes. If I missed that train, I'd have to wait for the next 15 minutes before I could catch the next train. And as I arrived at the train station, I peered up and I saw on the screen monitors that the train I needed was coming in the next one or two minutes. I made a quick dash and I started to run down the escalator to try and catch the train. And there before me was the train. The doors were still open. And so I pushed my way through and I jumped on the train. And right after I jumped on, the train doors started to close. And the train was starting to move. There were a number of people on that carriage. It was like any other train ride I've been on. 
And I sat down thinking about how I had managed to save 10 or 15 minutes of my time. But as the train journey went on, it was about a 20-minute ride to my home. A young man came to me and started talking with me. And we just started talking about casual topics. But then eventually I became a little bit curious. And I asked him, looking around, I saw so many different people. And I said, what made you come and talk to me? And then he gave me a response that caught me off guard. He said, the Holy Spirit prompted me to come and talk to you. And I didn't know how to respond, but politely we continued our conversation. And then eventually my stop came. And I said, oh, by the way, it's great to meet you, but this is my stop. And he said, oh, I live here as well. And so we got off at the same stop. But I noticed that there was an older gentleman in his 60s walking alongside us. He was intently listening to our conversation. As we got out of the train station, we, had to, uh, we were heading in opposite directions. And so I said farewell to them. But then, just before I was going to leave, his older friend introduced himself to me. And he said, before you leave, I'd love to have you come over to our house for dinner. Now, like any good boy who's been taught by his parents to beware of strangers, I gave him my number, but I gave him the wrong number. And so as I walked away, I thought I'd never see them again, satisfied. And a week went by, and again I was catching a train. And that friend was there again. And I tried to coyly avoid him and try to buy my ticket, hoping I could catch the train before he could see me. But he saw me and he started waving to me. He said, Vikram, Vikram. And, you know, he was a very bubbly kind of person, very dynamic. And so he approached me and he said, Vikram, I've been trying to call you. And he said, but for some reason, I keep saying that I've got the wrong number. But then he smiled. And he said, this time, can you give me the right number? <laughs> and I didn't have any choice left, so I gave him the right number this time. And so he gave me a call. And we started to become good friends. We started to play tennis together. But then he invited me to his house. And I realized I had something more in common with his older friend. You see, his older friend had recently become a Seventh-day Adventist. He'd been raised an Adventist, but for many years he'd stopped going to church. He was a backslidden Adventist. But someone from my home church, when I later became baptized, was doing letterboxing. And so they put a flyer in his mailbox. And when he picked up that flyer, he said, I can't believe that Seventh-day Adventists are still alive. He said, let me go and see what this church is all about. And so he started attending that church, and eventually he was baptized. A few months later, he met me. And this person started to do Bible studies with me. But when he told me that he kept the Sabbath, I became resistant. And I started to withdraw myself from him. Not only was it because of the fact that he kept the Sabbath, but he shared two things with me that made me really angry. He told me two things. The first thing was he said, and this was on our first meeting, he said, you will become a Seventh-day Adventist. But not only that, he said, you will get training at a Seventh-day Adventist college and become a minister for God. Now, for someone who was not religious, for someone who had great ambitions to go into, to become a businessman, to hear something like that, I was deeply offended. And I said, in my mind, thank you for letting me know. I'm going to do exactly the opposite. And eventually, as time went by, with work, part-time work starting to creep into my life, with my own responsibilities at university starting to creep up on me, we start to grow further and further apart. And about four years went by. And by that time, I completely lost touch with him. And I remember I'd graduated at this time, and I was trying to look for work. I graduated with a combined degree in commerce and IT from one of the top ten universities in the world, according to them. Um, called the University of Melbourne. And so I thought the world was my oyster. I was a very ambitious person. 
I got that from my dad as well. And so I thought, oh, for me to find work will be a piece of cake. You know, with his degree, a good university, a good resume, um, surely it'll be fine, easy for me to find a good job. And so I started applying at very selective companies, at the best companies. I started getting interviews. I started to go for all these rounds of interviews. Now, if you've applied for graduate work, you know how it works. They have a series of different interviews that you go for. And for some or the other reason, I'd make it to the last round. But then somehow, they wouldn't offer me the job. And so it was about June now, and I realized that I was jobless. And I started to panic. And so I started applying everywhere, not only in Melbourne, but in Sydney and Brisbane. I started traveling to see if I could find any kind of job. Things were getting more and more desperate for me. But during that time as well, something happened to my brother. I remember my brother started to grow more and more distant from me. And so I was impressed to go and talk to him. And as I approached and went to his office, I said, what is going on with you? You've been distant from me lately. I want to know. And he said, I need you to sit down before I share with you. He said, a few months ago, I was in a relationship with a girl. He said, however, we broke up. I didn't see her for many months. But a couple of months back, she came to me and she looked pregnant. And being very naive, growing up in a school where we had no drugs, no alcohol, I was thinking, well, this must, she must have a different father. Um, but he told me that yesterday the baby was born and I'm the father. And I start to weep uncontrollably as it started to hit me for the first time. In our culture, something like this was taboo. To think that my own brother, who had been raised a Christian, would do something like this, it really hit me right to the core. Not being able to find a job, dealing with the issues of my brother. Not only that, but he found out that she was also a heroin addict. Something he didn't know before. All these things combined together led me into depression. And I started to... There came a stage in my life where I couldn't even leave my house. I used to panic when I used to come across strangers. My palms used to sweat. My legs used to shake. I couldn't even talk to people. And I remember thinking, how on earth am I going to find a job? My dad was communicating with me often. And he said, if you can't find a job, just come back to India. I'll find something for you. But I said, no, I'm going to look for something here myself. <clears throat> and as time went by, I realized that I could not cope on this by myself. I recently came back from Sydney looking for jobs. And as I came back, I realized I was all over the place. I couldn't contain myself any longer. And I just broke down and started crying. I started weeping. And then finally, I said, God, if you exist, I need your help now. And right then, an image flashed into my mind. And that image was of the friend I'd met, the Seventh-day Adventist friend who I'd met over four years ago. And I sensed God telling me, if you're looking for answers, you'll find it by talking to Him. And I said, God, but it's been four years. I've lost contact with Him completely. But then I sensed God telling me, look up your school diaries. You'll find His phone number there. And so, as I finished my prayer, I started to wipe the tears off my eyes. And I started to look for these old school diaries I once had. I started to flick through the pages, desperately looking, looking for His name and His mobile number or cell phone number, and I finally came across his number, and so I called the number up. But then the younger friend I'd met on the train spoke to me, and he said, well, he's not here right now, but I can give you his cell phone number. And so I said, yeah, whatever it takes, just give me his number, I need to contact him. So he gave me his cell phone number, and then I said, Lord, please, I pray he picks up. And so I called the number and started to ring. And it rang, and it rang. And then finally someone picked up. And I said, Keith, it's Vikram. 
And he said, Vikram, I've been praying for you these last four years. And he said, what are you doing the Sabbath? I'm going to come back. I want you to come with me to church. And so he invited me to church that coming Sabbath. And during that time, I met another friend from church. I'm trying to condense the story into something as short as possible for you. There's a lot that happened. But he introduced me to another friend who then became my spiritual guardian after I was baptized. And that friend was very persistent because at that stage, I managed to find a good job. And I was one of three graduates who were selected. It was the largest privately owned um, company in logistics in the Southern Hemisphere. And to be able to receive that job, it was my dreams being fulfilled. I said, finally, everything I had studied for, everything I'd worked for, my dreams were finally fulfilled. But during that time, this friend started to invite me for these small groups um, that they ran on Friday evenings. And I tried to avoid them as much as possible. But he was really persistent. And he often used to drive to my workplace and said, I'll give you a ride to, your, to, to the small groups where they were meeting together, Seventh-day Adventists. And oftentimes I say, no, no, you know, I have things to do. I've been working long hours. I need a break. But he said, listen, I'm willing to give you a ride. And so I went a few times with him, um, oftentimes trying to avoid it as much as possible. But one Friday, I'll never forget, because religiously he called me again that Friday, straight after work. And he said, Vikram, what are you doing? And I said, listen, Henry, it's been a really long week. I've been working about 70 hours this week. I said, I really need to take some time off. Do you mind if I take this Friday off and come back next Friday? And he said, okay, sure, let's do that. So I hung up the phone and I said, praise God. You know, I can actually avoid him this Friday. And I caught the bus. And as the bus started to go back home, there was a stop that came, which was the closest to where they met. And the doors opened and it started to gently rain down. And right at that stop, I sensed God telling me, get off here. And I said, Lord, you know what a long week this has been. Surely you must be a merciful God. I said, just let me go home and get, get some rest. And again, I sensed God putting a deep conviction in my heart. He said, get off here. I said, Lord, you can see how it's raining. Do you really want me to get wet? What if I catch a cold? You know, are you surely a loving God, as I've heard about? But again, I felt that conviction. And God said, get off here. And so I said, fine. And I made my way out the bus. And it was raining down. I was trying to get wet. I finally managed to find the location where they were meeting in the city. And I remember what it was like, because that was a turning point in my life. As I rang the doorbell and someone opened the door, I remember the experience I felt. Because all my life, I've been looking for someone to accept me. Someone to let me know that I'm part of their family, that I'm loved. And as I walked in, I felt a real sense of peace. I heard songs of him playing gently in the background. I saw members of the church coming together and greeting strangers like myself who they've never met and made me feel like family. They made me feel loved for the first time. I saw how people came together to prepare meals. I said, who on earth would do this? You know, who on earth would actually spend time from their week to prepare a meal for someone else? Who would actually take time to prepare a Bible study so that they could teach others? And I was deeply convicted by that time there. And during our praise and prayer time, I decided that I wanted to learn more about the Bible. As time went by, I was eventually baptized and doing Bible studies. I became so eager about the Bible that as soon as I used to come home, the first thing I used to do was open my Bible and just start studying the Word of God. I started studying the prophecies. I started memorizing Scripture. I simply could not get enough. And then four months later, I was baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church, just as my friend once predicted. And as I started to share my testimony... That night, I sensed that God was calling me to follow Him into full-time ministry. And it's a long story, but a year later, 
I left my work, and hopefully I can share that story with you some other time, um, just how God led me beyond that point of time, beyond my baptism. But what I want to share with you today is really the fundamental importance of small groups and how they can transform your church, because that's what happened with me. I came in as a stranger, but people loved me and they invited me. They made me feel like family in their small group. And that's what led to my conversion experience. And I can tell you that it's not just me, but we've had over a hundred baptisms at that church. These are people from all kinds of countries like China, Malaysia, Singapore, from the United States. These people come having no knowledge of God, but when they interact with us in our small group fellowships, they realize the love of God that is apparent there in that church. And they say, this is something I'm longing for. And you sense that eventually they are open to receiving Bible studies, just like how I was. And I believe in the power of small groups. There's actually a seminar taking place here in small groups. There are two people who have come all the way from Australia, from my home church, doing this training on small groups. So if you get a chance, I invite you to go for the total church session. Don't miss our session on discipleship because it runs at the same time. But go for the total church session and they'll be talking a little bit more about small groups there. There's a passage I want to share with you and it comes from John chapter 13, verse 35. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. This afternoon and tomorrow we'll be sharing more principles about discipleship. Today I just wanted to share with you my own journey into discipleship and how love is the basis of discipleship. More than just receiving theoretical knowledge, what you need to understand is that love undergirds our relationship with God and our relationship with our fellow human beings. If this is something that you're lacking in your life, you cannot be a true disciple of Jesus. You can have all the knowledge you can desire, but if this one core element is missing, then you cannot be a true disciple of Christ. Jesus said in John 13, verse 35, All will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But how can we receive this love? In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Paul, the apostle, says, And hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So where do we receive the supernatural love from God? It comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It comes from heartfelt repentance, from coming down on our knees and praying for the Spirit of God to transform our lives and transform our hearts and our minds. It comes from an earnest plea to God asking for the infilling of the Spirit of God. And when you pray that prayer, when the Spirit of God is poured out upon your church, something dramatic can happen. And I believe in the power of small groups to change a person's life. The Spirit of God was given to this end-time church, not just for our personal edification, not just so that we could grow in theoretical knowledge, but the Spirit of God was poured out for the end-time church so that our hearts could be regenerated, so that we could receive that vital force that we were once lacking. The Spirit of God came to prepare us to preach the Gospel with power and to finish the work in these end times. And I believe that's the reason why GYC was raised as an end-time movement, to train and equip you to do the work that God has promised for these end times. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is a passage you're very familiar with. Jesus promised the outpouring of the Spirit of God for the twelve disciples. And He said, But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto Me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus outlined a dramatic plan for evangelism. Jesus said that if you start here, the work will begin to spread. What if I could tell you that the principles you learn here on discipleship 
would not only transform your church to be a lighthouse for God in your community, but it's something that will catch fire and will spread all across the United States. And not only from the United States, but will cross all across the world. Would you say that that is too grand a vision? Well, that is exactly what Jesus had in mind. And that's something we'll share with you this afternoon and tomorrow if you come back. But notice this word here, power. Sebastian in his first session talked about how in Greek, and I spent a whole year learning Greek and Hebrew, um, the word power comes from dunamos. You have another word for power, which is exousias. But Jesus here was talking about dunamis, power. Power here is not just something supernatural, something that gives you the ability to preach in front of 5,000 people. But the power that Jesus was also talking about with regards to the Holy Spirit is the power of being born again, the power of being regenerated into living a new life completely and wholly devoted to God. Jesus said, you shall be witnesses to me when the Spirit of God is come upon you. But notice what it says in the next chapter, in chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost finally came, the disciples were all in one accord, in one place. There was genuine unity. The Spirit of God was unleashed, not just for them to become effective witnesses, but the Spirit of God, most importantly, was poured out to bring them into unity with one another. Today, are there divisions in your church? Are there factions? Are there people who do not agree with each other on how to conduct evangelism? Are there people who teach different kinds of doctrines and heresies? And so many times we find that our church is divided at the helm. But yet, we sense that when the Spirit of God was poured out, the disciples came together in one accord, in one place. You sense that happening continually. In chapter 2, verses 44 to 47, it says, And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. But now notice the results. When the Spirit of God was poured out powerfully at Pentecost, not only was the gospel preached in a powerful way, but their unity of the disciples, the love for one another, that Jesus said, thereby people shall know, you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In John chapter 13, verse 35, look at the results. In the last verse, it says, and the Lord added to the church, how often? Daily, such as should be saved. Sometimes we think that evangelism is going to finish the work. Sometimes we think that powerful preaching, if only we have a good preacher, that they'll finish the work for us. But really, God is looking for a church that uses its lay members filled corporately with the Spirit of God, where love has transformed the hearts and minds of people, and people are now coming together steadfastly studying the Apostles' doctrine, doing Bible study, eating together, praying together in small groups. And it is through that mechanism that God can then bless the church and daily people will be saved. What if I was to tell you that something similar like that could happen today? Well, let me tell you, something like that is happening in Australia. My home church was started as a foundation as small groups is seeing baptisms taking place continually. We're seeing people who've never heard the gospel before, atheists, come to God in a way like never happened before. People giving their hearts and lives to Jesus. In the book, Testimonies, Volume 9, pages 209, the inspired writings tell us, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, there will be a triumph of humanity over prejudice in seeking the salvation of the souls of human beings. God will control minds. Human hearts will love as Christ loved. This is the promise that's been given to us. She says here that God will control minds when the Spirit of God is poured out. But notice what she says. The Spirit of God is poured out for what purpose? That human hearts will love 
as Christ loved. If you're here this morning to learn about discipleship, before we go into the nuts and bolts of what discipleship actually involves, if there's one thing that you learn, let it be this, that the Spirit of God is poured out to bring unity in our church. The Spirit of God is poured out so that we can love one another in a way like the disciples loved one another 2,000 years ago. That's the fundamental foundation of discipleship. And finally, in John chapter 17, verses 18 to 21, Jesus prayed a prayer just before He was to be crucified. Now, you can only imagine that just before He was going to be crucified, that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, as blood began to fall down His face, as tears streamed down His eyes, Jesus had one thing in mind for His disciples. In John chapter 17, He says, As Thou hast sent Me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Jesus was talking about you and I, the disciples who are going to continue the work faithfully after He was crucified and He departed into heaven. And He says that they may be one, that the world may believe that Thou hast sent Me. Friends, when we talk about the corporate infilling of the Holy Spirit, there's one thing that we cannot forget, and that is love that is the foundation of our church. If there's one thing we desperately need in our church today, it's the love of God that is manifested through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. As the disciples came together and started to meet in small groups in the early church, you find that at that time, the various Roman emperors used to throw the early Christians into those large coliseums where lions who were starved for days would then be unleashed and would be sent to devour these Christians. And thousands of people used to come together in these coliseums to watch Christians being devoured by these lions. But there came a time where an entire small group of Christians was thrown into the Colosseum. And the Christians determined that each one before the other was going to perish before their brother or sister could lose their life. And as the lions were unleashed, the lions came for the Christians and the Christians began to fight against the lions, protecting their brothers and their sisters as the lions came and started to devour them one for another. And there, as the crowd began to look on the scene, they were overcome by emotion. They came here for a sport to see how these Christians who loved one another so deeply could be devoured. But they were overcome by emotion and they all stood up and the only thing that could say that they could say was look at how these Christians love one another. And that was the very last time that the Christians would be thrown into the Colosseum. Friends, as we come back this afternoon and look more into discipleship, we look into discipleship revolution, as we go into the Scriptures and see what the Bible has to say about discipleship, and tomorrow as we look into practical ways in how you can start discipleship into your local church, don't forget this fundamental basis for discipleship, and that is learning in how to love one another. We're going to bow our heads for a word of prayer now. We're going to have a time for Q&A, question and answers, if you have any questions at all. And then we will spend time in corporate prayer together, breaking up into small groups of threes and fours, and I'll lead out in that. Let's bow our heads for prayer right now. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this afternoon, Lord, we want to thank you because of the work that you want to do here, starting in Houston, Texas. Father, I believe that each and every person in this auditorium is brought because they were inspired by you. Father, in the times in which we're living, we realize that this is no longer business as usual, but this is business unusual. Lord, we ask that through these seminars, that people would not just be fed with knowledge, but that they would dramatically be changed 
in their hearts and their minds. And the Spirit of God is poured out in a new, powerful way. Lord, we believe in the indwelling of Your Holy Spirit. We believe in the promises that You gave us 2,000 years ago. And we believe and claim by faith that the promise You gave us 2,000 years ago can be fulfilled in our time even today. That the work that was done then is the work that can be done now. That the love that was experienced back then is the love that can be experienced even today as we prepare for Your soon coming. I ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give us a few minutes now for questions and answers. majority of my message this morning was my personal testimony. If you have something, if you have a few questions you'd like to ask about our text, you're welcome to do so. Um, otherwise, we will break up into our small groups and spend time in prayer. Does anyone have any questions for this morning? I just want to do a quick time check and see how we're doing for time. All right, well, if there's no questions, what we can do is break up into groups of twos and threes and just spend some time in prayer. I want you to pray for two things. The first thing is that God would indeed break your heart in the time that you're here. That you would experience the outpouring of the Spirit in a way like you haven't experienced before. And the second thing I want you to pray for is that God will give you divine appointments in your time here at the conference but also as we go out on outreach tomorrow. Can you do that for me? Two things. One is to pray that God will break your heart and those in your group that you pray with. And secondly, that God will give you divine appointments in your time here. That God will give you a vision of how you can use discipleship in your home churches. Break up into groups of twos and threes and we'll spend about five minutes in prayer and then we'll dismiss and head to lunch. So let's come down on our knees and let's spend some time in prayer just where you're at. And then I'll close us off with prayer. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.